The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. I'm delighted that we're joined for the Culture Club today by Maggie O'Farrell, the author who has been shortlisted for Novel of the Year in the Unpost Irish Book Awards for The Marriage Portrait. Of course, she also wrote the acclaimed Hamlet and many other novels. And she's also a children's author. And she's also brought out this autumn, The Boy Who Lost His Spark. Maggie, thank you very much uh, for joining us here on The Last Word in Today FM. Writing children's fiction as well, simultaneously. Why so? (laughs) Well, I think it just came out of telling stories to my own children, actually. And, you know, it's an interesting kind of, uh, it's an interesting thing to do alongside it because it actually uses, you know, writing for children uses very different muscles from writing to adults. And the thing that I've learned most, actually, is, of course, that kids' books are intended to be read aloud. So when I'm writing them, I read them aloud to myself. I do sometimes read them to my children. Children are great editors, in a sense, because you get instant feedback because if they're bored, they just get up and walk away. What age are your children? <laughs> well, they're 10, 13 and 9 now. So, you know, yeah, they're, they're kind of coming to the end of children's stories, but they, but nicely they still listen, but they still sometimes walk away as well. How important was it to your own love of storytelling and writing that your father, who I believe was from Dublin, used to mm-hmm. te- read you only Irish stories? <laughs> it's true. So at the time it used to really annoy us because we used to say, Dad, please, can you read us Pippi Longstocking or, you know, The Secret Garden? But he would only ever read Irish myths and folklore to us which we were quite annoyed about but actually now in a strange way I'm grateful to him because you know those stories are embedded in my bones and in my DNA and it's just you know I I think they're the biggest influence on my own children's books because you know Irish folklore is a just sort of describes a landscape where which is alive you know the the stones and the trees and the and the rocks are all sentient they're either filled with life or they are alive themselves and so and that fascinates me i think as a kind of narrative force and yet in your new book the boy who lost his spark there's a character who could be called the puka but i believe wasn't for a reason i would never have thought of <laughs> yeah so so in my book there's a there's a kind of ancient creature called the nuka who lives inside an old volcano and it's loosely based on the Irish puka, yeah. But you see, the problem is you can't use the syllable poo in a children's book without veering into a, a whole other kind of story. <laughs> and tell us, since Hamlet, I suppose, really brought you onto a different level, did it, of uh, public success, what has that been like for you to have written a novel that got such an incredible response that seemed to resonate with so many people? Well, you know, in a strange way, uh, you know, all that happened in 2020 and 2021. And I think actually I was quite lucky because it all happened, obviously, at one, uh, you know, one remove, all at arm's length. And so actually it was the least weird thing that was happening in that time. <laughs> because you were living through COVID, which you've had on a number of occasions <laughs> yourself. Yeah, uh, we were all, you know, we were all locked down at home. And so everything, all the events I did were online. So I was just talking into a screen. So I think in a way... I think that kind of reception to a book could have been, could be possibly a bit destabilising. But so in a way, I feel quite lucky that it happened at a distance, in a sense. How did you cope with being ill? Because you wrote a memoir about illnesses that you've experienced mm. and your family's experienced, and you were particularly ill as a child. Yeah. In fact, there were fears that you might not survive and mm-hmm. then that you might be in a wheelchair. So when you get to adulthood and when you go through something as weird and different as COVID, what sort of memories does that bring back and what sort of fears does it elicit? Well, I think, you know, I think coming so 
close to death as a child, I think could have gone either way. It could make you quite um, risk averse in a sense, you know, it could make you quite a cautious person. But I think with me, it, it, it sort of had the opposite effect on me. I've always felt though my life is, I'm so incredibly fortunate to be here and incredibly fortunate to be ambulatory. Um, so in a sense, I kind of see my life as a bonus, you know, and I'm actually, I think I, I have, I, I sort of take too many risks probably. I mean, less so, less I know I have children for sure, but but certainly having, and actually COVID, the first time I had COVID, that actually brought back some of the neurological symptoms I'd had as a child, which is the first virus in 40 years to have done that. I mean, obviously it's not headline news. COVID isn't very nice, but uh, I was astonished. I hadn't expected that at all. And what about the marriage portrait, which, as I said, is nominated for the Unpost Irish Book Awards Novel of the Year? Tell us a little bit about that story. So it's a novel about a young uh, duchess in Renaissance Italy who suddenly realises that her husband is is uh, planning to murder her. It's based on real life events. If anyone's ever read the poem by Robert Browning, My Last Duchess, uh, that's her. She's called Lucrezia de' Medici, and she was uh, she began her marriage to the Duke of Ferrara at the age of fifteen. And by 16, she was dead, possibly uh, by the hand of her husband, possibly not, depending on which historian you believe. So I just thought it would make a good novel to imagine a story that she herself might have told, were she able. What attracted you to that story? I think I, I mean, I've always loved that poem. And I was just, it was actually just before lockdown started. And I was just wondering whether it was based on real events, because some of Browning's poems are. And I was just looking up and I... I had her name, Lucrezia de' Medici, and then this portrait started downloading on my phone, you know, uh, very, very slowly. And the, I could see these brown eyes and this very elaborate headdress. And then uh, by the time her whole face had downloaded, I it was extraordinary. I, I, it's never happened to me before. I knew that I had my next novel because her face looks anxious and worried, as well it might. Um, and she just looked like she had something she wanted to say. So I knew that I would... I was going to write the story of what she might have said. But then how much attention do you give to historical accuracy or how much do you just leave your imagination take over? Well, I tried where possible to find out as much as I possibly could about her. There's not a huge amount known about her. Um, she, you know, we know when she was died and when she was mar- when she was born and she was married. Um, but there's quite a lot about her family. Obviously, she's a, she's a Medici, so the, <laughs> there's no shortage of books. They're a very famous uh, dynasty. Um, so in terms of the kind of... Uh, her milieu and the atmosphere and and the and the you know the palazzos where she lived. I mean that's all that's all on record. But in a sense, those gaps I think might be frustrating to a biographer or a historian, but to a novelist, it's it's a bit of an opportunity. <laughs> okay, Maggie O'Farrell is our guest for the Culture Club today. So let's move on to the various choices that you've given us, and we ask every guest to nominate the first piece of music that they remember buying, which is usually a single. And uh, you have gone for the Pogues. Yes, so I I definitely think that I bought it would have been a tape, obviously. Um, this would be the mid eighties uh, of the Pogues, and um, so we used to. Although you know, obviously I was born in Ireland, but I um, grew up mostly in Britain. But we used to come back most summers, and I do remember buying a tape of the Pogues. And I have it, it just the, the, there's one track in particular to sit down by the fire, which really reminds me of um, being with my grandfather in Donegal and him driving down a very dangerous, vertiginous road. Um, and he was allowing me and my cousin to stand up with our heads out of the roof, <laughs> which certainly wouldn't have happened with my parents. And in my mind, that song is playing um, on his tape recorder, which was sitting on the passenger seat. But obviously it can't have been because it wasn't recorded till later. But for some reason, there must have been something very similar. 
Well, the track we actually have from Rum, Sodomy and the Lash was Sally McLennan. Well, Jimmy Blake, I'm on again, the pub where I was born. He played it from the night time to the pace of early morn. He served the souls of cycles and the men who had the horn. And they all looked very happy in the morning. But Jimmy didn't like his place in this world of ours Where the other man brought stormers next and he had too many pairs So I'm sad to see the creeping of the people that I'm leaving And he took the road for God knows in the morning We walked him to the station in the rain We kissed him as we put him on the train And we sang him a song that ties long gone Though we knew that we'd be seeing him again to say I must be on my way So buy me a pair of whiskey Cause I'm going far away The Pogues from the mid-80s from Rum, Sodomy and the Lash. So, favourite album, what have you picked for us? Well, I think my favourite album probably at the moment anyway because I've got I've had so many favourite albums as we all have uh, would be Beirut's The Flying Club Cup. Um, Tell me about this. I'm not familiar with this. Yeah, it's, it's, they're, they're not they're not very widely known. I wish they were, but it's it's an amazing story. There's a kind of lot of influence of Eastern European music with accordions and fiddles, and they're just very, very beautiful songs. And on it, there's incredible vocals that go over the top, and there's a brilliant sense that the melody is being passed around these different instruments. It's very wistful. It's something I often listen to when I'm getting ready to write. Um, I can't listen to music when I'm writing. I have to have uh, silence, but... There's a kind of certain type of music that I listen to again and again just to get me in the headspace. It's a, it's a way of crossing the bridge, I think, from my real life to my writing life. And, I, and, and, and this album is one that I'll put on again and again for that. OK, this is Beirut. This is the track Not. <laughs> It's been a long time, long time Since I've seen you smile And I gamble away my fright And I different Beirut's album The Flying Club Cup so we asked you to nominate favourite band but you had to give us a long list <laughs> doesn't everyone know yes. I would think <laughs> I mean when I was a teenager definitely The Cure love The Cure and I still still listen to them now in my 20s it would be Radiohead uh, and these you still days, listen to Radiohead I hope to oh yeah no I do but in my 20s they're my absolute favourite band but no no I still listen to Radiohead I love Radiohead uh, these days I'm listening to a lot of Elliot Smith and Blonde Redhead and Grizzly Bear why so? Hmm, I think at the moment, actually, I'm writing something which the sort of emotional landscape of Elliot Smith really suits it, actually. Sometimes I listen to music 
I suppose, just as I was saying, to get me in the kind of headspace to write. And there's something about his songs which are always very sad and very wistful. And, yeah, I, I just, yeah, there's something about his songs that I come back to again and again. Well, let's hear a bit of Elliot Smith. And this is a clip from the 1997 album Either Or. This is Between the Bars. You obviously get yourself very calm before you write, do you? <laughs> well, it's calm but sad. It's very, it's a very sad song between the bars. Okay. I want to also play a little bit, though, of The Cure, given that you mentioned it. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about them in a second. Uh, this is Boys Don't Cry. actually from 1979 from the album Three Imaginary Boys. Wow. You still listen to The Cure, do you? I do, yeah. I still love The Cure. I will still put them on. Yeah, I often get my kids to dance around the kitchen with me to them. Maggie O'Farrell is with us for the Culture Club. We have lots of things to get through, including television, movies, books, musicals, plays. And we'll get to all of that once we come back from this break. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Today FM. 
Welcome back to the Culture Club with Maggie O'Farrell, who of course is nominated for Novel of the Year for the Marriage Portrait at the Unpost Irish Book Awards, which are on in just over a fortnight's time. Maggie, we've gone through all of your musical tastes, but you also have a musical for us, one that's been nominated many times by guests here in the Culture Club. You're a fan of Hamilton. Why so? <laughs> well, because my... Basically because of my daughter, who's 13, is absolutely obsessed with Hamilton. I mean, to the point which she's read the Ron Chernow biography of Hamilton. I mean, she said she wanted it for her birthday and we bought it for her thinking she's never going to read it. But she did, every word. Um, and so it's partly just the joy of watching her love it so much. Uh, and, it, and also, you know, what's not to like? It's just absolutely fantastic, isn't it? It's the whole game changer and the whole in the genre of musicals. So it's just it's just an absolute joy from start to finish. Let's hear a bit with Lin-Manuel Miranda. I may not live to see our glory. I may not live to see our glory. But I will gladly join the fight. But I will gladly join the fight. And when our children tell our story. And when our children tell our story. They'll tell the story of tonight. Let's have another round tonight. Let's have another round tonight. Let's have another round tonight. Raise a glass of freedom. Something they can never take away. No matter what they tell you. Raise a glass to the four of us. Tomorrow there'll be more of us. Telling the story of tonight. There's a glass to freedom Something they can never take away No matter what they tell you Let's have another round tonight There's a glass to the four of us Tomorrow there'll be more of us Telling the story of tonight Hamilton. Now, you have as a favourite play, and I shouldn't be surprised that you're actually, <laughs> given that you're the author of Hamlet, have... Picked Hamlet as your favourite play. <laughs> yeah, if I had to choose one play, it would it would have to be Hamlet. I first read it when I was 16 and we were studying it at school and it got under my skin, I think, in a way that no other play or character ever had. Why? There's something... Well, I think what that kind of feeds into something I wrote about in the book, I think. You know, there's been a lot of debate with scholars about how old Hamlet is. You know, is he 30? Is he 14? Who knows? Uh, and so people have debated that because he's a student, obviously. Um, and to me, you know, reading rereading it now as an adult with my own teenagers in the house, he seems very much about 15 or 16 to me. He seems like a, you know, a, a young adolescent pulled into a world... Of, you know, an adulthood, which he's he's not quite ready for, into this world, which is confusing for him, um, and of course that plays into my theory, anyway, in the novel that that that, that his that Shakespeare's son Hamlet's death inspired the play, or has actually informed his grief for his son has informed the play, because it was written about four or five years after Hamlet died, aged eleven. So it just makes me wonder whether Shakespeare was resurrecting his son. In, in this character. Favourite movie? You have gone for a foreign language movie that I'm not familiar with, Time of the Gypsies. Yes. So this is a film uh, which was made, I think, in the 80s by Goran, uh, sorry, by um, Kusterica. And it's about uh, the former Yugoslavia and the Romani community there. 
It's an absolutely incredible film. It's, it focuses on a young boy who has telekinetic powers and a pet turkey. So it's very funny and it's very strange, but it's also very, very sad and very moving. It's an absolutely fantastic film. I can't recommend it enough. Where did you come across that? I saw it years ago when I was living in London at a kind of repertory cinema and at this time, you know, I had no TV. I had no. I didn't even have video record at this point. And so I used to go and see it about once a month. It would come around, and I would go and see it every single time. It it came up at the Riverside. It was called the Riverside Cinema in London. And so I've seen it about fifteen times. I think it moves you that much. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. My <laughs> husband recently bought it for me on DVD, so I can watch it whenever I like now. <laughs> you still have a DVD player? <laughs> Not- <laughs> I do, <laughs> for that reason. <laughs> OK, television shows. And uh, what, what did you get into as a child and a teenager? Well, as, when I was a young child, I really loved Jack and Uri, uh, which was, I don't know if you had it over in Ireland, but in the UK it was often kind of quite famous actors like Judi Dench and they would be reading uh, a story to camera. I mean, it was, it was very kind of low-tech. <laughs> but, you know, this was TV in the 70s. Um, and... Yeah, so they'd often act it out. So it was very sort of stiff and quite strange, but it was it was riveting, absolutely riveting. And I obviously, for obvious reasons, because I loved stories, so I used to watch, I used to always make sure that I'd be watching that. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole. No, it was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. This hobbit was very well-to-do, and his name was Baggins. Oh, I suppose hobbits need some description nowadays. They are, or were, a little people about half our height and smaller than the bearded dwarves. They wear no shoes because their feet grow natural leathery soles and thick warm brown hair, like the stuff on their heads, which is curly. Oh, and they have dinner twice a day when they can get it. Now, the mother of this hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, that is, was the famous Belladonna Took. And the fact was that the Tooks were not as respectable as the Bagginses, for once in a while, members of the Took clan would go and have adventures. So it's probable that Bilbo, Belladonna's only son, got something a bit odd in his makeup from the Took side. By some curious chance, one morning long ago when Bilbo Baggins was grown up and thoroughly respectable... When I was a teenager, I loved all the kind of alternative comedy that was coming out then, so... I never used to miss Friday Night Live and if I was working as a waitress, which I did when I was a teenager, I used to set the video recorder to watch it so I could watch it when I came back. It's funny, only the other night with friends, conversation turned to Friday Night Live. Just remind us what, who all was in it. I think it was the likes of Ben Elton. Well, Ben Elton was the MC. Yeah. He used to appear in a kind of glittery jacket, didn't he? And then there was Harry Enfield, I think. And who else was in it? I mean, all kinds of people started their career there. I don't know if French and Saunders were in it. Or... So it was sort of like an English version of Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Exactly. But hopefully funnier. Yeah, quite a lot funnier, I think. Anyway, but maybe I'm a bit biased. So it was just a very, it was a very exciting thing in the 80s. And it was the kind of thing that you had to have watched if you went back to school on Monday morning because everybody would be talking about it. And then in adulthood, you are about the hundredth person who's nominated Succession. <laughs> well, I mean, it's so good, isn't it? It's just impossible to stop watching. So I, you know, my husband and I got really absorbed in that during lockdown. Definitely that was our kind of lockdown project. I thought you'd be in St. Bart's by now. <laughs> How's it going? Good. Um, yeah, fine. Good. Uh, why are you... Are we okay? Yeah, it's just some paperwork. What, ahead of the announcement? 
Uh, putting Marcia on the trust, it's bullshit. I uh, just felt like checking in. Oh, yeah, fine. So this is just the trust? Yeah. yeah. Doesn't, uh, doesn't affect me stepping up? No, 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 I think I told you about it. Seth, sorry, Dad, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of, uh, do you need, do I need to lawyer all this? It's housekeeping. Uh, fine, yeah. Yeah, Marcy's fine by me. I mean, the others might not feel the same, but I'll deal with that. So, I'll, uh, see you in, uh... Yeah, look, Dad, uh, on lunch, I really want to be with you, but the deal, Son, you know... It's your call. Just priorities. There'll be plenty more. Uh oh. Wheat. Bye, Frank. All right, amigo. It's just a mesmerizing, mesmerizing TV show. But also, actually, something I've watched recently was um, Elena Ferrante's, the adaptation of Elena Ferrante's My Brilliant Friend. And I was very worried about watching it because I love the novel so much and I thought nothing can be, nothing be as good. But it's, it's an astonishing adaptation. It's so good. They um they found these young unknown actors to play the girls as children and then as teenagers and they are just honestly I couldn't fault it and it's very very close to the novel and it looks so beautiful and so perfect. How much of your own work has been adapted? Well, as yet nothing, but it's all, several of them are in various stages. The film world is a mysterious, <laughs> a mysterious thing. It moves and it moves in mysterious ways. Put it that way. Um, so who knows? They might come off or they might not. I'm not going to hold my breath, but it's but it's exciting anyway. Is it exciting? And this is something I do ask authors because if your own creation is taken and changed into something else, are you prepared for that? I think so. I mean, I because several times I've been asked if I want to write the script and I know novelists who've done it really successfully. Emma Donoghue, for example, does a brilliant job, but I, I wouldn't want to do that. I feel like I've written the story the way I want it to be. So I'm quite happy to hand it over to an expert. And And of course, any play or film of my work would be something different you know it's the, it's the same story but it'll be a different beast and that's fine with me as it happens Emma was only on with us last week talking oh, really? about that about <laughs> her latest movie and having done the screenplay for it in conjunction with others yeah. working with others I don't know how she does it <laughs> does what well just how many hours in the day can there be in Emma Donoghue's life <laughs> let's talk about books and I'm amazed that you managed to narrow it down to one book and author Dubliners by James Joyce. It was hard, and I did. Originally, I had quite a long list, but I did just for you narrow it, <laughs> narrow it down. I think if I had to choose one, if I was, you know, if for whatever, under whatever circumstances someone said I'm going to burn all your library apart from one, that would probably be with the one I would I would choose. I read it first, I think, when I was quite young. I do remember reading it as a teenager and just being particularly the last story, The Dead. There's just, you know, there isn't a semicolon or a comma out of place is not an extra word it's just every single thing about that short story is perfect as it happens it's the sisters that we've actually managed to get a clip from uh, this is read by Andrew Scott and in this clip following the death of his friend Father James Flynn the unnamed boy dreams about the priest trying to confess something to him it was late when I fell asleep Though I was angry with old Cotter for alluding to me as a child, I puzzled my head to extract meaning from his unfinished sentences. 
In the dark of my room, I imagined that I saw again the heavy grey face of the paralytic. I drew the blankets over my head and tried to think of Christmas. But the grey face still followed me. It murmured. And I understood that it desired to confess something. I felt my soul receding into some pleasant and vicious region. And there again, I found it waiting for me. It began to confess to me in a murmuring voice. And I wondered why it smiled continually and why the lips were so moist with spittle. But then I remembered that it had died of paralysis. And I felt that I too was smiling feebly as if to absolve the simoniac of his sin. You mentioned earlier that you like reading children's books aloud. Mm. What about adults' books? Something like The Dubliners, do you believe, should it be read or listened to? I think it could be both. I mean, I I myself, I don't listen to that many um, books on audio just because I like to linger over the text, I think. But I think people have their preferences. And obviously when you've got Andrew Scott, that's... Uh, He's a pretty good narrator. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with him. But I read that you talk about Emma Donoghue and what time she has to fit everything in, <laughs> that you might read four novels a week. How can you possibly read that much and write not just one book for this year, but two and do all the other things with family that you do? Well, I have to say that I do have really bad insomnia. And I always have had actually just ever since I was young. And I think, you know, obviously there are massive downsides to insomnia, but the upside is that you do get quite a lot of reading done. There's something I have a habit of. Um, so if my husband and I, you know, we fall where we, we go to bed and we both read and he gets really annoyed if when he wakes up in the morning, I've not, I've not only finished my book, but I've started the one that he was reading. <laughs> he, he says it's my worst habit. <laughs> and what are you reading at present? At the moment, I have just finished uh, Donald Ryan's new book, The Queen of Dirt Island, which is just, unlike all his other books, is absolutely gorgeous. It is, and Donald did this Culture Club only a couple of months ago as well. I'm in wonderful company. Yeah, I just, I really, I think it's his best yet. I loved it. Yeah, he has an absolutely beautiful, sparse style of writing as well, Mm. hasn't he? But also understands, I mean, how well do you feel he writes about women and understands women? I think he's brilliant at writing, particularly at the sort of minute shift between human relationships. So, yeah, I didn't have any, I don't particularly have any argument with men writing women or women writing men. Not at all. I mean, we're all all human, aren't we? And if you were, if you had a lengthier list of books to offer me, what else would you recommend? What else would I recommend? I've just read a fabulous new American debut writer called Alice, oh God, no, I've forgotten her name, Alice Quinn. Um, and she's written a book called In Memoriam, which is about um, a love affair between two men on the front line in the, in the trenches in the First World War, which is gorgeous. OK, well, we will leave it there. Maggie O'Farrell, it has been terrific having you with us here for the Culture Club on The Last Word in Today FM. And uh, hopefully you will be back for the Unpost Irish Book Awards, where you were up for Novel of the Year against, I think, Donna Ryan and some other really strong contenders as well. But best wishes for that. And thank you for taking the time to join us this evening. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.